This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Friday, February 23rd. Russia's war on Ukraine enters its third year this weekend, and it's a year that could be make or break for Ukraine. Coming up, Ukraine's ambassador on the next phase of the fight. And two former staffers for Ontario Premier Doug Ford have been appointed to a committee that helps select judges. And Ford says he's 100% okay with it. Why the Ontario Law Association is calling Ford's comments dangerous and undemocratic. But first, the Liberals and NDP reach a deal on pharmacare. Just ahead, everything we know about this national program that will help Canadians pay for medicine. We're going to start on that pharmacare deal because after weeks of talks, the Liberals and New Democrats have come to an agreement on draft legislation that sets out the framework for a national pharmacare program. In the short term, the deal will also provide new coverage for some key drugs. I'm joined now by the CBC's chief political correspondent, Rosemary Barton. So, Rosie, what do we know? What's in this deal? Well, I mean, the big piece that you said is that there will be a draft framework of legislation that could be tabled as early as this coming week that would sort of lay out the blueprint for what the future of national pharmacare could look like like in this country. And in the interim, while we wait to see how long that would take and what the commitment is to that, uh, the government has agreed uh, to cover two two pieces, two classes of drugs, if you will. Diabetes, so it would be a variety of medications under that uh, description, and contraception. And same mm-hmm. thing there, a variety of different kinds of contraception. And those would be available to all Canadians, whether you have insurance or not, uh, and they would be for free. So that is a significant first step towards national pharmacare. It is we are the only country that has a universal health care program, but no pharmacare program. So this is the beginning of something. And for the NDP uh, and the leader of the NDP, it was enough to say, okay, we're going to stick around. We're going to hang on to this deal a little longer. Because remember, David, the original agreement didn't have money associated with it, and it wasn't going to go quite this far. So mm-hmm. the NDP agreed to delay um, to, to go along with the Liberals and delay the uh, getting to this point in order to extract a little bit more. Here's uh, Mr. Singh and what he told me earlier today about some of the details. We have got uh, confirmation uh, in the legislation of language on single-payer specifically, single-payer universal public. We've got commitments to language specifically that reference the Canada Health Act. And the Canada Health Act is very important because the principles in the Canada Health Act are very much in line with the single-payer universal. So we've got that commitment in the legislation and like you've mentioned and like I've mentioned, beyond the actual legislation, we now have concrete commitments on two classes of drugs to be covered using a single-payer model. That single-payer model is a, is a big deal because it is something the government, the Liberals in particular, have talked about for years and years right. and years and really shied away from because of the cost associated with it. Tens of billions of dollars we're talking about here. The fact that they are willing to look at it, to put the framework there, and to cover those two big classes of drugs um, really does show a shift and, and potentially a shift that will be helpful and, and useful for many Canadians. Right, because they're supposed to have legislation in place by the right. end of last year and right. they've delayed it until now and they get the, the contraception and diabetes drugs covered right. uh, as a result of that. So what happens next? I, I mean, th- this is not, yeah. you don't just snap your fingers and have this done. No, it, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit more complicated <laughs> than that because it is going to be some sort of shared cost um, with provinces. So uh, you and I were talking before, the daycare probably is a good example. Yeah. What will the provinces be able to pick up when it comes to these shared costs? And then there are a couple of provinces that have been moving in this direction, British Columbia, Manitoba, already moving to cover contraception. What will they do? Will they just pull back on that and then take what the federal government... 
And then, of course, you know, it, it, the federal government, one of the benefits people had been saying is that the federal government will be the sole buyer, the sole purchaser. That should make the cost of those drugs go down. And would, you would also then, I think, turn to drug companies and insurance companies and say, okay, well, if the federal government's picking up these costs, will our premiums go down to other people as well? So there's lots of moving parts still on this. Um, but of course, the other big thing that it does is it preserves the uh, supply and confidence agreement. It means that the government can breathe a little sigh of relief here and soak in the NDP. There'll be no election imminently. And it provides what this deal was supposed to do, which is provide a little more stability for the government to move forward with its broader agenda. Okay, Rosie, thank you so much. That's the CBC's chief political correspondent, Rosemary Barton. And be sure to tune in to her show this Sunday morning, Rosemary Barton Live, for that full interview with Jagmeet Singh. The Liberals and the NDP have come to an agreement on a framework for a national pharmacare program. In an interview with the CBC's Rosemary Barton, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said weeks of talks have produced draft legislation. We've secured something really important, I'd say really historic for Canadians. We're really excited about this. We have legislation that clearly points to single payer. It references the Canada Health Act and the principles of the Canada Health Act. Very much what we needed to get, so that's, that's secured. In addition, we have a commitment to cover two classes of drugs in a single payer model. So proof of concept, we're actually delivering. This is well and above what we had in our agreement. So this is something that's gonna make a big difference in the lives of, of Canadians. The two classes of medication that are covered, contraceptives as well as diabetes medication. So in the short term, this means new coverage for contraception and diabetes treatments, plus it gives the green light for the two parties to keep operating under that supply and confidence agreement, keeping the minority government alive at least for now. All right, we're going to talk about this with the Friday Power Panel. The CBC's Jason Markasoff is with us today, as is Kelly Kreiderman. She's with the Globe and Mail. Nigan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. And Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief. Uh, happy Friday, gang. Uh, Nigan, our long national nightmare is over. The uh, supply and confidence are going to <laughs> survive because of this. Uh, but you know, the key tangible deliverables that the NDP got out of this in contraception and diabetes coverage. What do you make of this news today? Uh, every single person in this country is touched touched upon by diabetes. And as somebody speaking as someone who has a teenager in their life, I mean, I think this is something that's going to touch upon a lot of different people in the country, almost every single one. Uh, now, the question is, is whether this will carry votes? Will this have any impact in the national political scene? And both of these parties need a win very badly, and we've been talking about that for weeks. Uh, the hope is that, that, is that this deal will bring attention, uh, which it has. The hope is, will it be remembered on Monday? And will it be remembered when people go to this single payer system and are able to get those things that are needed, especially in some of the voter, voter demographics that the NDP needs. Uh, those are people who are perhaps on the lower end of the spectrum that need some financial assistance. And for the Liberals, they're looking at the middle class and getting signed of that area mm. in which they can see maybe those who have been impacted by diabetes and so on that need that kind of attention. I guess it'll be the question is, let's open up newspapers and watch the TV on Monday, whether this see whether this will have impact or not. Well, we, we click on newspapers now, Nigan. Come on now, right? You know, so, <laughs> but, you know, I still get it delivered. <laughs> I do too, actually. I get Saturday mm -hmm. papers. Nice. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, Rob, um, 
this we're going to see the legislation, I believe, Thursday. Uh, what we're told is to envision that this will be a cost share, that they will have to negotiate deals. The federal right. government will with the provincial government. Uh, but, you know, it is a tangible move on, on a key priority for Jagmeet Singh. So, so is this a win for the NDP today to get this through? Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think that the negotiations were more difficult than a lot of people were letting on. Uh, some people called them quite tortured. Um, and it's foundational uh, in, in that it lays uh, cornerstones for the expansion of this at some point. Uh, I think it's a clever political uh, agreement in, in that um, it, it goes after uh, people who vote. It goes after people like me who uh, are dyeing their hair to enhance their dignity and might be of a certain age. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they vote. They turn out to vote. And it also uh, uh, goes after women who have been going away from progressive parties towards yeah. the conservatives. Uh, and I think that it's set up as a kind of a wedge to try and uh, with contraceptives by um, by targeting social conservatives to see if they're uncomfortable with this as well. So it's a clever political document. Uh, we'll, we'll see if it actually achieves that purpose. But in, in the meantime, in terms of mm -hmm. its actual impact on people, uh, I think it's important. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, where I come from, type 2 diabetes is endemic. And, you know, a lot of chronic diseases in Atlantic Canada for people with low incomes. And, and Kelly, I, I wonder if this is up and running, because this gives them the 18-month runway to the election, should, should they want to take it and they can negotiate these deals with the provinces like they've done with childcare and other things. It locks something in place with a cost that people will be getting by the next election when the main rival for government from the Liberals are talking about cutting costs, rolling back spending, and, and fixing the budget, potentially creating a, a tension point there. Yeah, there's, there's a political virtue here and there's a policy virtue here. I think, you know, contraception touches a lot of people's lives too, whether they think about it or not. And I think it is a win on that front to make it more widely available and at no cost. And, and I think there's a virtue in this in terms of a win for the Canadian public as well in that this was a condition of this agreement going forward. But I think there were big questions about the costs and the implication of implementing it wholesale at this point at a cost of, you know, anywhere be between 10 and $15 billion worth. When we do have budgetary issues in this, this country, we do have a lot of other pressing priorities. And I think it, it is, it's a good compromise in that respect as well. It also sets up a situation maybe not today, but at some point where the Polyev Conservatives will have to answer on this and say what they think. I also think it sets up an interesting dynamic, uh, again, for another discussion between Ottawa and the provinces. I think, uh, you know, whether provinces are uh, indifferent to this or don't want to take on other costs, and I can see that in my own province, not knowing exactly what will be said yet. Um, is an interesting question. Obviously, they're going to have some provinces on board right away. But, you know, mm -hmm. this model of discussing things with provinces, I wish uh, it would be carried forward to a lot of issues, including on climate and energy.
Yeah, well, well, Jason, Daniel Smith, and, and Justin Trudeau are due for a meeting, as we learned this week, so maybe they can talk about this when they get together there. <laughs> I, I think a lot, we, we, we don't yet know the cost and the, the full details of, of what drugs and treatments will be covered. I think you're going to see it modeled heavily, heavily after what's in British Columbia. That's at least the early indications we're getting. So, like, Bob Canoe and David Eby, no problem with this. It, it saves them money uh, by, by bringing the federal role uh, into the areas they're already covering. How do you think the other provinces uh, might, might uh, react to this? Some of them might react, uh, you know, uh, uh, unfavorably to this, especially if it imposes a cost. And I mean, I think the thing that gave um, gave some of the premiers comfort on the daycare, a childcare deal was that uh, they didn't have to put in much mm-hmm. of anything. Um, so I think if th- I think that could set the standard for it. I know that it, um, when the Alberta NDP proposed um, making a uh, uh, contraceptive care uh, universal, the uh, Alberta uh, UCP and Daniel Smith said. Like the privates already cover this mostly, so most people are covered by that. I'm not sure how many people are unaffected. Well, I think I don't have the numbers, but um, and I think I think that it, because we're a dude-heavy panel today, I think it's worth saying that um, <laughs> while all it's while enough, all it's enough oh, who are affected, I would say yeah, it, 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 it's everybody's <laughs> affected. But, but 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 let's face it, it's women who pay for this. It's not men who are paying who are buying IUDs off. Absolutely, so it's, right. It's so the economic cost is borne by women, so uh, it does matter to everybody, and especially it will, it'll matter to uh, to women. And of course, people who with uh, with you know who suffer from diabetes will uh, you know be feeling this very carefully. I mean, this is just yet another challenge in terms of polyev. Um, you know, the what will you cut um, chorus, I'm sure, will uh, be queued up uh, pretty quickly by the uh, by the progressive parties. Um, and that goes daycare, dental care, now pharma care, um, you know, child benefit. Um, that's going to be, uh, the chorus will be loud and it's going to give, uh, you know, if if Pierre Polyev is serious about uh, trying to get to a balanced budget, um, fewer and fewer uh, areas to uh, to navigate. Yeah, so, so on that, um, Nigan, on the potential you know, wedge of all of this, right? And look, it's important for people with diabetes to be able to get the care they need. You know, we spoke to a woman from Calgary this week you know, who, if not for her job at Good Life, uh, would have to spend more than $5,000 every couple of months to get medication. Like, this is a real burden for people, you know, in, in vulnerable economic positions. But politically, the, the liberals in particular are trying to cast the next election as a choice between all of these things we've built versus all of the things they will cut, you know, is the binary they're trying to put out there. Does this help them in that? Where does Jagmeet Singh fit into this? Uh, how do you see it, Nigan? Uh, we just listed off a sort of laundry list of the major accomplishments of the Supply and Confidence Agreement. Mm. And uh, the, I, I wasn't surprised at all to see Jagmeet Singh wanting to claim the victory over this. Uh, but when it comes down to the electorals, the election, the elections, the electoral promises that are made, it's going to be the Liberals that will try to take the lion's share of this attention on this issue and say, we got this done, we got these li- these litany of things done, and, and we are the people who are the social, uh, looking out for the kind of s- socialisms of the country, the kind of health care, the kind of care for everybody concerned, whereas the big bad conservatives are going to be the ones that are only going to look after their friends and so on and so forth. I mean, I think the conversation around the premiers is going to be very interesting over the next, uh, I think, 18 months might be optimistic. But uh, when when we're really talking about how that conversation is going to go with Daniel Smith, how is it going to go with Ford? How is it going to go with Quebec? You know, how are we going to go uh, to be able to negotiate these things? I mean, no premier turns down money. But premiers absolutely turn down opportunities to share attention with Trudeau. And so I wonder which will be more 
attractive politically for any of those premiers to be able to turn and turn down what is going to be a rather favorable uh, a favorable thing that the Trudeau government can say we got accomplished in our time. Uh, Rob, uh, just on sort of the credit for all of this, you know, the New Democrats were out doing interviews about it, Mr. Singh speaking to, to Rosie and, and in particular. Um, I, I think they were talking to reporters about this when word leaked out before even giving the official confirmation to the Liberals that, yes, you have a deal. I think the Liberals felt they had it, but I think they found out when all the stories started to break that, yeah, it's officially done. I mean, the NDP really want uh, to be in the spotlight on this one. And I, and I think that they can claim credit with, with some justification. Yeah. The, the Liberals have mentioned this in the past, as, as they've mentioned Pharmacare, but really they, they've been kind of shoved in, into this corner. Uh, it, but it also tells us, David, we are getting closer to the time when they, somebody is going to have to set the terms for the divorce between these two. It's going to come. It has to come be, be before the next campaign. Uh, and and I, I'll be watching for that. The, there are discussions about the next budget that are happening right now as well. They, the NDP wants some stuff on housing yeah. in, in the budget. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think that this is going to be when the divorce happens. But, but look for uh, them kind of staking their grounds as, as they get ready to go their separate ways uh, and, and head towards divorce court, which is going to happen in the next six months yeah. to a year. So, so, Kelly, how does, how does that work uh, in, in the custody battles? Uh, the, the NDP gets diabetes, the Liberals get contraception, you know, who, uh, dental care is joint custody. Uh, you know, uh, how, how do you think this plays out uh, politically on this in terms of you know, Jagmeet Singh justifying the value of the Supply and Confidence Agreement because they, they were supposed to get this done in December, and what the New Democrats are saying now is by waiting until now, that's when they got the, the immediate coverage of these specific classes of drugs put into the agreement, and, and they're stacking that on top of dental cares as their big wins from this but by waiting they also got this agreement to continue so that that's the key part of all of this and i i think you know uh, i'd love to be part of those uh, mediation sessions between the ndp and the liberals when they're divvying all this up i think they will both obviously try to claim credit for it and i think you know they're despite this being a, a mostly a win for the NDP, I think there is a risk still that they have hitched their wagon to the Liberals for a longer period of time, getting closer to an election, and that, you know, their, their polling numbers, which are somewhere, stuck somewhere around 20%, stay stuck because they are seemed, seen as a arm of the Liberal Party. And I think that is, uh, you know, that will be a really delicate dance for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP in terms of how they distinguish themselves from a party where, you know, not only have they worked together, but they're in agreement on an, a number of issues ideologically, including their opposition to the Conservatives. So how do they extract themselves and differentiate themselves? That's the thing to watch. Well, Jason, uh, I, I, for one, am shocked that the two parties who are being outpolled and out-fundraised found, found a way to, to keep their parlamentary arrangement alive <laughs> and push off an election. But with this out of the way, I mean, we, we talked about this a week ago. Singh has been out publicly talking about this and threatening that March 1st could be a real cliff for this arrangement. What does he use now? Like, this yeah. is done. They've delivered. What's the leverage here now? Yeah, I mean, they've, you, you think of the, the big wins they, they wanted and got in this. They got the uh, anti-strikebreaker uh, legislation. They got dental care. Um, they, they're getting this. Um, I don't know how, uh, how to the wall they're going to go for their uh, expansion of voting days and other uh, minor electoral reform pieces. Uh, maybe it's telling, uh, either of my ignorance or of the importance of it, um, what, uh, you know, what the other major planks are. 
uh, that they have to go with the, how big their to-do list is. I mean, obviously, pharmacare and dental care were the uh, were the big ones. Um, I think Kelly makes a really strong point about uh, that we, you know, that they're going to have to find these off ramps that they're not going to want to, you know, be be ar- be linked arm in arm. Um, surely they'll come into this election, uh, you know, this next election with uh, loudly broadcasting what they did. And if they become, and this is, you know, we've been come pretty close to this, um, the second place party in the polls, they'll be able to say, uh, you know, vote us, not liberal, because we are, as an opposition party to uh, to Pierre Polyev, will be fighting more strongly than they are for the things that you care about. Yeah, and, and when you look at the diabetes rates right across the country in a lot of uh, marginalized populations and, and low-income levels, this is this this is something that will really make a, a big difference in, in a lot of populations and a lot of regions. All right, uh, we got to say goodbye. Thanks so much, gang. We appreciate it. Jason Markasoff, Kelly Kreiderman, Nigan Sinclair, and Rob Russo. Thanks, David. Bye. Thanks. Well, tomorrow marks two years since Russia invaded Ukraine, sparking the largest armed conflict in Europe since World War II. Here's a quick look back at how it started and where it stands. From the north, south, and east, tens of thousands of Russian troops and tanks stormed Ukraine on February 24, 2022. Russia expected to take Kyiv within days, but Ukraine's resistance was grossly underestimated. After early gains, Russia was held back. A Ukrainian counteroffensive even regained some lost territory. Funding from allies has been crucial. Billions of dollars and mass deliveries of weapons and equipment have helped power Ukraine's fight. But that lifeline is now on life support. Aid from the U.S. has dried up as Republicans block attempts to send more. And for months, it appeared the war was at a stalemate. But the tide has begun to turn in Russia's favor, with Ukraine running low on supplies. The human and economic toll has already been severe, as the United Nations estimates more than 10,000 civilians have been killed and up to 70,000 Ukrainian soldiers. Millions were forced to flee the country, and the country they left now wears the battle scars of war. The damage to buildings and infrastructure is estimated to be at $152 billion. Yulia Kovalev is Ukraine's ambassador to Canada. Ambassador, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Uh, I'd like to start, if I could, with the situation on the battlefield, which is looking pretty grim in in recent months. This week, Russia took over the city of Avdivka. Ukraine says it's running low on on ammunition uh, because of slow deliveries from the West. How dire is the situation on the battlefield in your country right now? You know that um, uh, the the situation is now significantly linked to... uh, to the uh, ability for Ukrainian soldiers to fight back, uh, and also the way whether they have the um, ammunition, whether they have enough weapons to fight back. And uh, the one thing what Ukraine is doing ourselves, we are significantly increasing our own defense sector, both with our Ukrainian capabilities, but also building the joint uh, centers of production of different weapons in Ukraine with the global leaders, um, global defense companies. And also we are working and urging our partners to uh, speed up the delivery of uh, those type of weapons uh, that have been, uh, you know, promised to Ukraine, because that's important that our soldiers who are there now who are now in the cold trenches, so they are well equipped to be able to fight back. Are, are you getting any indications from your allies that deliveries will be sped up? We know the issues in the United States with that significant aid bill being held up. 
by, by a small cohort uh, of the Republican Party. Uh, we've seen insistence from countries like France that whatever the European Union buys in terms of munitions is bought within Europe, which can slow things down. I mean, how worried are you that domestic political considerations amongst the Allies are, are getting in the way of the, the rapid delivery of the ammunition and weapons that you need? Uh, we see uh, that now many of the European countries uh, stepped in uh, with the, the, both the delivery of the military support, but also building this uh, joint ventures to produce uh, that both in Ukraine and in the EU and NATO countries to be able both to supply to Ukraine and to increase stock as many of the com uh, NATO countries are increasing their defense spendings. Uh, we uh, we just recently Ukraine signed the security uh, agreements uh, with UK, with Germany, with France. Um, today with Denmark, and each of these agreement includes also the big package for the military support, which is committed specifically for this year. Uh, plus, European Union just make a decision for the 50 billion support package. So this is now the time when a lot of our partners are stepping up uh, to be there in the moment when there is uh, still the, the debate in U.S. And this is a very important moment just for the other partners to step in and to give the shoulder of support to Ukraine. The, the U.S., though, seems critical, Ambassador. They have been the spine uh, of, of the military support, certainly in the high-end uh, military technology that, that, that your country has used to this point. Uh, how concerning is the political situation in the United States right now for the defense of Ukraine? Uh, we are, of course, working uh, with, with the Congress. We are working with a lot of friends of Ukraine uh, so that the U.S. support continue. Uh, for Ukraine, because uh, it's it's important for all of us. It's important for the interest of all of the NATO um, countries, NATO member countries. Uh, because in reality, what is happening today, Ukraine is fighting to protect our own country, but also fighting uh, for, to protect the eastern flank of NATO, mm -hmm. to protect many of those countries who are uh, neighboring with Russia. And Canada has also Russia as a neighbor in the Arctic. So it's in our joint interest to win this war. And so that Russia will learn their lesson once and for many decades ahead and forever uh, that it cannot by itself redraw the sovereign borders. You mentioned that you, your country has recently signed security arrangements with the United Kingdom, with France, Germany, and Denmark. I understand Italy may be close. I know there are conversations with Canada. Draft proposals uh, have been exchanged. How close uh, are Ukraine and Canada to formalizing a security agreement? The negotiation teams, both from our side and from the um, Canadian uh, side, uh, are working closely. Um, and, uh, you know, the, this work is now in progress. Okay, is it imminent or uh, is it uh, too difficult to say or am I getting you in trouble by asking you to try to give us a timeline on when this might be done? No, there was this, this week, there were the consultations which were happening in Kiev. So it's it, like the, the progress is good uh, and uh, both teams are working very intensely.
Okay, uh, I have to ask you a question as well. We, we, we focus a lot on, on the weapons and the ammunition shortages uh, that President Zelensky has warned about and which we've seen on the battlefield. But we also see that, that Ukrainian lawmakers are are considering a revised mobilization bill, which would expand the eligibility to be drafted in the military service and also um, put stiffer penalties for people who uh, avoid uh, the mobilization to stand in the defense of Ukraine. Is the concern right now, Ambassador, not just a munitions shortage, but possibly a, a shortage of soldiers uh, because of this? Because we are seeing Russia grow its forces considerably in your country and, and in its own country. Is Ukraine also facing a shortage of people as this uh, war enters its third year? Uh, of course, like uh, there are the people and many people who back two years ago, um, exactly the day that we will mark tomorrow on February 21st, force voluntarily uh, went to serve to protect the country. And many of them are fighting already two years with almost no pause. And of course, we need to uh, provide uh, rotations for them. So the people need to uh, go home, the people need to have a rest, and we need to conscript more people so that it will be the rotation between them. And the new uh, legislation that the parliament is now considering uh, precisely uh, is talking about it. So it will clearly define the, uh, the length of uh, how long the people are serving and how what will the will be the rotation period um, and this will give more clarity and of course the, this will um, allow many people to have the clarity in how long they will serve when they will come back home what will be their training how they, well they will will be equipped um, and these all are important things in terms of the most important things what i personally hear of a lot of my friends who are now serving of the most hottest spots is that uh, the biggest motivation from for the people who are serving who are fighting on the exact the front lines is the uh, the weapons as they are getting more weapons more artillery shells and they are able to fight back this is the biggest motivation because if they are sitting for days and nights and it's also winter uh, in ukraine it's quite cold and without the ability to fight back of course, it's, uh, the people are desperate because they, they want to make a progress. They are ready to do it. They are well-trained, and Canada supported a lot the training for Ukrainian troops. And this, this is the, the key thing. If the people understand that they are going to the front line, they will, have all, they will have all what they need to fight. It means including the long-range weapons, including the needed artillery shells, of course, we will see much different situation on the front line. It seems, though, uh, two years in, this could still go for, for quite some time because Russia had that rapid advance in, in the early stages of the war. And then your soldiers took back about half of the territory in the counteroffensive. But now, as we, we started this conversation, uh, key cities like Avdika are, 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 are being lost because of the ammunition shortage. There is also a U.S. presidential election happening later this year, and the war will likely not be done before Americans vote. How concerned is Ukraine about the possibility of a Donald Trump presidency, given everything he said about President Zelensky, uh, about Vladimir Putin, and about NATO? First of all, we are ready to work with all of the uh, administration 
and all of the governments among our partners with the arguments why it's important and why Ukrainian victory is important. And uh, I think, you know, if we are looking on the battlefield and with these discussions, I think we are missing also one important point, which happened this year. Uh, and I will just give you the figure. In January, in January this year, Ukraine has been able to export almost the uh, same volume of cargo through the uh, Black Sea ports as we've done pre-war. Mm. So there is a significant improvement what is happening on the Black Sea. Even without any like Istanbul initiative, Ukraine was able to significantly destroy the Russian Navy fleet in the Black Sea. So now not only Ukraine, but the other uh, different cargo is going uh, through the ports. Uh, and just recently, we were very successful in destroying Russian fighter jets. And I want to remind you, as we are looking on the situation on the front line, this is one of this, the cases of the full-scale war, where, unfortunately, till now, Ukraine does not have uh, prevail in the air. So we are waiting for the F-16 um, to be a great support of our troops on the ground, because now, unfortunately, Russia still prevails, uh, prevails in the air. Mm. We have uh, made a big progress in destroying within the recent two weeks uh, a great number of uh, Russian fighter jets, including one yesterday. So we will continue to do that. But of course, we are waiting for the delivery of the F-16, which will support our troops on the ground. I just have one final question. Um, you mentioned you know people who are fighting on the front lines. Um, you, you've been in this diplomatic job t uh, throughout this war, but you're Ukrainian with friends and family in that country. Just how have you been holding up over these two years, and how do you feel personally as you're entering this, this third year of, of Russia's invasion? Um, over the weekend, my cousin died. He was killed by Russians on the front line. He was 35. Um, he has two children. So um, just to explain everybody, the war is very personal to each of us. And, uh, you know, there is no other way for us than to win this war. There is no other way that each of us having this grief and pain uh, in our families, between our closed ones, and the suffering of the all 40 million nations, uh, we will fight till the end because we want to live in our country. We want to live in our cities. We want to live on our land. We And the key goal what Russia wants is just to erase Ukraine as a nation. And so with support or without support, we will fight. And um, it's important for all of our partners, all of our friends to also ask tomorrow on the second year of the anniversary, what else we can do to end the suffering and to support our victory. Yulia Kolev, I, uh, please accept my, my deepest sympathies uh, on the loss uh, of your cousin. And uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. As Yulia Kovalev, Ukraine's ambassador to Canada. Thank you. Ontario Premier Doug Ford is defending his government's appointment of two former staffers to a committee that recommends which lawyers should become judges in Ontario. We got elected to get like-minded people in appointments, and uh, by the rules, 
you can't have lawyers uh, picking judges, so you have to have citizens. I'm not going to uh, appoint some NDP or some uh, liberal every single appointment I can to find tough judges, tough JPs to keep guys in jail. And I say guys because 99.9% are guys. Uh, I'm going to do it. So uh, that, that's part of uh, democracy. So this is all first reported by the Toronto Star that Matthew Bondi and Brock Vandrick were appointed to the committee. Bondi was formerly Deputy Chief of Staff to the Premier, and Vandrick was Ford's Director of Stakeholder Relations. For reaction to all of this and the Premier's defense of these appointments, Douglas Judson is the Chair of the Federation of Ontario Law Associations, and he joins me now. Hello, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You heard the Premier there today. He said this is part of democracy in defending the appointments. What do you make of that comment? Well, I think the Premier's comments reflect a fairly fundamental misapprehension of the importance of having an independent judiciary in our justice system, and also a fairly juvenile understanding of what, why that matters in, our, in a democratic system, and, and how harmful those types of politicizing comments are uh, to our courts, to our justice system, and to public confidence in the administration of justice. Why is that harmful? Is it the fact that he's appointed two people who worked in his office, or is it his comments about wanting tougher judges and tougher sentences? What's your assessment of that? Well, I think what, what happened today was the Premier dug in on those appointments, and I, I think less concerning are those two individuals who are appointed, and the tenor of the comments which suggest that the Premier is open to more political and partisan wrangling of this committee, which is supposed to function independently and supposed to remove patronage from the judicial appointments process in Ontario. Now, people need to understand that we're talking about the provincial court in Ontario. That is where most of the criminal and a large portion of the family matters are heard uh, in, in Ontario. What the Premier's comments suggest is that not only do they want final say on the short list of people who become judges, but they want more political involvement, um, partisan involvement in the generation of that short list at the advisory committee level. Okay, so, so these two appointments being staffers, we often see on committees like this people who have donated to political parties getting appointed. Uh, is that okay? Is any political connection okay? Or is it the fact that they worked in the Premier's office, is that the bridge too far for you? I think the bridge too far are really the comments themselves, not so much the appointments. We can look to many types of appointments that happen both federally and provincially across the country, and we will see people that have um, some ties stronger, some weaker uh, to, various, um, to, to various parties that are in power. What the Premier is suggesting is that because they win an election, they get to um, politically uh, contort who gets to become a judge in the province, how the selection process for that plays out. And I think a lot of people will hear his comments today and hear a very strong insinuation that if you have ties to any other political party, to a political ideology that does not align with the government, then you will not find, your, find yourself uh, an appointment to, to the bench. And, and that is very damaging for the fabric of our society because what it does is it undermines our confidence in that institution and suggests that judges are not fairly adjudicating what's before them, but they are, in fact, political actors. Okay, that's interesting, because, you know, as a political host and reporter, when I heard those comments today, it sounded to me like a premier defending what could be called a patronage appointment, you know, political loyalists. Uh, you see it very much on the administrative and credibility of the justice system side of things. So you're not too upset that, that Mr. Bondi and Mr. Vandrick are there. They could stay there as far as you're concerned, as long as the premier hadn't said what he said in defending them. Is that, am I reading it right? 
Well, you know, speaking out for the Ontario Bar, we're generally concerned with systemic issues in the justice system. You know, I, I'm not really in a position to comment on Mr. Vandrick or Mr. Bondi's uh, particular credentials for this committee. Um, what I am concerned about is whether partisan credentials matter to become a member of the judiciary. And I think what we heard from the Premier today is a suggestion that if you fall outside of their party lines, you will have a more difficult path to doing that. And it suggests, um, you know, manipulation of that process which is very damaging um, to you know, the checks and balances we have in our democratic system. So you know, we're seeing a lot of this language, I think, coming from the right right now, which suggests, well, I won an election, so now I'm going to stack the deck completely in, my, in our favor. But what people need to remember is that when you win an election, you also have responsibility to be a good steward of our institutions and the balance between them. And in this case, uh, the Attorney General in particular has a very strong role to play in upholding the rule of law, that everyone can get a fair hearing, and keeping political interference out of our courts in this selection process. So that is what the bar is really upset about today and what we're seeing in the legal community in reaction to these comments. So you called the Premier's comment contagious. What, what did you mean by that? I think that we're seeing a lot of this type of commentary from people in positions of power, right. particularly on the right right now, suggesting that they can move the goalposts of what we ought to accept for political interference in institutions and of the checks and balances over their own government. Remember, the courts are in place to provide an impartial adjudication when you are charged with an offense by the government or have some other dispute uh, that needs to be resolved in that forum. Uh, so for governments to, I think, start to imply that you know, there are all these people out here that aren't tough enough on crime and all these judges, these justices of the peace are, are, are part of the opposition to the mandate that we're trying to put forward. It is very damaging to the fabric of our society. It undermines the democratic checks and balances that we have. And, and ultimately, I, I think that that is something that as Canadians, we're more used to seeing south of the border from mega Republicans. Um, I was certainly aghast to hear those types of words coming from a Canadian premier this morning. Okay, uh, Ontario Liberal leader Bonnie Crombie is calling for these appointments to be reversed. Uh, what, what is your position here? I mean, you're speaking out against it. What would you like to see done and, and what actions might you take uh, in opposition to this move? Well, you know, I, I think people are going to question any appointment the government makes about whether the person was best suited, who, uh, you know, who else applied. Many of these are prerogatives that come with government. Um, uh, you know, again, most of our concern has been with the specific remarks from the Premier um, suggesting very strongly that there ought to be more political intervention in the appointments to the bench. And, and I think that's really what it comes down to. You know, governments will, I, I think, live or die by the decisions they make when we go to the polls, and people will have their own conclusions about whether those were good appointments. Uh, and I, I have no, I have no you know, information about the you know, credentials of those two individuals mm -hmm. or their suitability for appointment. But so uh, at the end of the day. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, just as, just as a final point, extrapolating from the Premier's comments about keeping 99.9% .9 mostly guys in there, keeping them in jail, it sounds like they have a, a, a bias for judges or judicial candidates who will mete out heavy sentences or have strict bail conditions. I mean, that's what I draw from that. I mean, how do you interpret that as a lawyer, and how do you think that's going to be interpreted throughout the, the court system? Well, I I think the bar is interpreting that as if you are involved in prosecution or law enforcement, step right up. Um, if you are a liberal or an NDP or involved in criminal defense uh, or have ties to any other political movement, perhaps you should not. Um, that is not a healthy notion for our justice system. Uh, unlike the Americans, we don't have liberal judges and conservative judges. 
we just tend to have good judges. Um, you know, keep in mind, these comments aren't just damaging to those who might be appointed in the future, but it suggests that anyone who's been appointed by this government was subject to a political litmus test. And I think that that itself um, is unfair. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's damaging to the institution, but we're talking about people that also can't defend themselves. Douglas Judson, we appreciate your time. That's Douglas Judson, Chair of the Federation of Ontario Law Associations. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.